To withstand the devil's attacks, you must stand firmly grounded in Christ and equipped in God's armor. Well, good morning, WSBC. It is a privilege to be here with you this morning. Very thankful for your prayers and encouragement for our church, Christ Covenant Church, and for the many friends that we do have here. Uh, we're <laughs> very thankful over the years to get to know many of you, uh, many friendships and encouragements, uh, not just personally, but also in our ministry together. I'm going to start off by asking you, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. You ever heard that? Is there anything good about war? I mean, certainly there seems to be something uneasy about calling any war good. For most people, even Christians, war-type language and mentality is often negative and even off-putting. All worldly warfare is more or less evil. We know, yes, that there are some wars that need to be fought in order to defeat some oppressor, to prevent the weak and helpless from being trampled by the strong, but war is still evil in many ways. As any soldier will tell you, any loss of life in a war is too high a cost for victory. And in war, there's a terrible amount of devastation, destruction, bloodshed, loss of innocent life, death of military combatants, economies are ruined, livelihoods lost, diseases harm even more people, there are families torn apart by war, widows made, and orphan children. And yet, there is one type of war that is emphatically good. One fight in which there is no evil in which to fight it. And that warfare, my friends, is Christian warfare. That fight is the fight of the soul. You see, true Christianity is a good fight. That's the theme that we're going to take up this morning as I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. With God's help, we'll be looking this morning at verses 10 through 20. So I invite you to turn there, or if you did not bring your Bible to page 12 of your bulletin, as we learn what God has to say to us about fighting this good fight of the Christian faith. I invite you to follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and, 
having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And praise God for his holy word. And brothers and sisters, as we do, as we study God's word, we want to know the main thing to take away from this text. The thing that you, Lord willing, can take into your life this week, but also in the weeks ahead. I believe the main idea of this passage, and therefore the thing to take away for your life today, is simply this. To withstand the devil's attacks, you must stand firmly grounded in Christ and equipped in God's armor. Let me say that again. To withstand the devil's attacks, you must stand firm in Christ and equipped in God's armor. I think there's five things that we should know about this battle that Paul speaks of here, this good fight of the Christian faith, if we are to fight it well. And the first is simply this. You can see it right here in the text in verses 10 and 11, is that you need to know you're in a battle with a real enemy. And Paul makes that very clear to you, Christian. You're in a battle with a, a real enemy here. You can see it again in verses 10 and 11. Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What Paul is telling you here, Christian, is to gear up, to be alert and ready for war. And if you just glance through this whole passage we read, you'll see that several times Paul uses this word to stand. Stand firm, right? This is imagery for soldiers to be ready, to be alert. Paul wants you to know that you are fighting a battle. It's a posture of readiness like any good soldier should, should have. I think too many people assume or are even told that when you become a Christian, your life is going to become easier. Have you ever heard that? Well, friends, don't miss this. Paul's making it very clear. The Christian life is not easy. It is a battle. True Christianity is a fight. There's a lot of religion in this world that is not true Christianity. There are many people who go to church every single Sunday. Uh, there are many people who become married, get married in a Christian service in a church. There are many ba babies who are baptized in the church. Many people who die and have Christian services at their funerals. However, for many of these people, one thing is lacking. There is never any fight in their lives. 
When it comes to watching, guarding, striving, defending, training, they know nothing at all. And while a sleepy, sort of toothless, fightless religion might satisfy masses of people, the fact is, friends, is that it's not true Christianity. It's not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not the Christianity that Jesus taught. It's not the Christianity that Paul and the apostles taught. It's not the faith that has been handed down to us, friends, because the Christian life is not a life of ease. There are no spiritual civilians in the Christian faith. The fact is, you have an enemy if you are a Christian, and this enemy is coming for you, so be alert. Paul is telling us, and he's asking you, are you ready? Are you ready for this battle? If you're going to be ready, you need to know several things. So that brings us to the second point that I want to point, that I want to highlight here, which is you need to know your enemy and his tactics. So yes, you have an enemy who is real, who's coming for you, but you need to know who that enemy is and how he operates. And I think Paul alerts us to this in verses 11 and 12. So put your eyes on it again. Paul goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I like this language that Paul uses here, very graphic. Notice he says that we wrestle against an enemy. So one thing you need to know about your enemy is this enemy is scary close. Just think about wrestling, right? It's a very in-your-face type of physical combat. Recently, we've been looking into jujitsu classes for our son. And I remember walking into the I don't know what they call it, a dojo. You walk in there and you see, we see these adults who are grappling with each other and they got each other in headlocks and smelling each other's sweat. And I'm like, oh, who wants to do this? Who wants to pay money? Uh, and my wife, I think, said something like, you know, who wants to pay money to have somebody sit on your face? But uh, anyway, you think about wrestling, it's a close contact sport. You have to get in close. You become very personal very quickly with the person you're fighting against. And Paul says, your enemy is wrestling with you. He's scary close. But notice also, this enemy is pervasive. Paul uses several different words to describe just how how extensive this enemy is. Did you see this? Look again here. Paul describes the enemy as being the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, friends, you can't just hide from this enemy because this enemy is everywhere. He's close and pervasive, but also it's a spiritual enemy. Right? Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against these spiritual forces. Notice, however, in this entire passage, when Paul describes this enemy, spiritual enemy, he uses images, language that these Ephesians would be very familiar with as Roman citizens, right? Ephesus is a Roman city, a very powerful one, in fact, and these Ephesian Christians would be acutely aware of Roman power, 
specifically military power. They were under the boot of the Roman military and under a very oppressive, even authoritarian Roman emperor who could crush people like bugs. And yet Paul does not point the finger at the Roman Empire and say, there's your enemy. Right? No, he says, no, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual forces. We need to know, friends, to be a Christian is to open your eyes to see past the physical reality, in a sense, to an ultimate spiritual reality of this real enemy. See, if you're a Christian, you see behind sort of just the physical nature of things, as important as it is. Christians clearly see what evil is, how it's behind things. That evil is not just some impersonal force, like the dark side from Star Wars. No, evil has a, has a persona. It's a very real enemy. And Christian, you need to know you're up against that enemy. And your greatest enemy, then, is not the Chinese government. It's not the American government. Your greatest enemy is not poverty. Your greatest enemy is not shame. Your greatest enemy is not lack of success or getting into the best school or having an opposing political view of someone. Your enemy certainly is not other Christians. Your enemy is the devil and his forces. And there's no enemy worse than the devil because he's never seen. He never dies. He's always near where we live. He always goes wherever we go. As a Christian, you'd have this divine eyesight, as it were, to be aware of how this enemy operates and who this enemy is. So let's think for just a moment here of how this enemy operates. We know his ultimate goal is to oppose God, to tempt us to sin. Paul here seems to know that or assume that you're going to know something of how our enemy operates. I mean, he says right here that you need to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil in verse 11. But also in 2 Corinthians 2, he says Christians are not ignorant of the devil's devices, right? So we don't want to be unaware. Let's know just a few things about the devil's tactics, our enemy. Number one, one of his tactics is to sow doubt. You ever doubt you're a Christian? As you belong to Jesus, you're tempted to think you're, you're born in sin and in fact you've never left it. You're tempted to think, if I am a Christian, then why is all this bad stuff happening to me? So one of the tactics the devil uses is to sow doubt into your mind that you're actually a Christian. Question your identity. That's tactic number one. Tactic number two he also sows worry and anxiety into your life. After all, did Jesus not say to you, do not be anxious about anything. Your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. And yet the devil comes along in your heart, does he not, and, and, and causes you to worry. Do I have enough? Do I have enough for today, for this month, for the rest of this year, for retirement, etc.? That you'll never be satisfied, in fact. And the devil likes to sow these thorns of worry in your life. Tactic number two. One more. Let, let me give you one more here. Accusations. The devil hears you proclaim to be a Christian, but
but then he immediately accuses you of being otherwise. He says, you claim to serve a new master, but look at your track record of unfaithfulness in the past. You see, he points you to your stumblings in the past and calls you a hypocrite, calls you proud, rubs your face in it. Friends, there are a myriad of other ways, other tactics the devil tries to employ against you. But you need to be aware of some of them. You need to be aware in your own life to keep aware of the enemy, who he is and how he operates. And let me give you two ways to be aware of that very quickly. Number one, study your own heart. Your heart is like a city. It's like a city with a walls around it. And if you're going to be able to withstand the attacks of the devil, you need to be able to per, uh, patrol the own walls of your heart, looking for gaps and defenses. You need to set a guard over your heart. You see, the devil is prowling the walls of your heart and looking for ways to get in. If you leave a door open or a window ajar in your heart, the devil can use that to sow seed, doubt, worry, anxiety, etc. So search your heart. Just find time to meditate through God's word and saying, where am I weak? But also, number two, study the Bible. If you're going to be aware of Satan's tactics, who he is, you know that some of the most prominent spiritual battles have taken place in the Bible. The Bible is a playbook, really. It's a history lesson in how the, the devil attacks. Did you ever think about it that way? It's a playbook for handling spiritual war. I mean, we can learn from the mistakes and successes of past saints who have succumbed to temptation or who have overcome to temptation. Adam and Eve, King David, Job, the Apostle Peter, even Jesus himself. Study the Word and you'll see the playbook for how to handle attacks from these spiritual forces. Okay, so we know that there's an enemy. We know we have to be aware of who that is and how he attacks. But also, number three, we need to have, or know, or be confirmed to know that we have weapons at hand for the battle. That's the third thing we need to be aware of in this fight. You have weapons at hand for the battle. I mean, I think we're all familiar with these verses. If you're a Christian for any amount of time, verses 11, uh, 13 through 18, uh, very well-known verses to many of us in the Christian faith. The armor of God that is described here. There are two pastors who I really admire, been very beneficial to me in my Christian life, who had a lot to say about these passages. A man named William Gurnall, a Puritan, he wrote three volumes, over a thousand pages, just on these verses, the armor of God. Another pastor, preacher, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, 20th century Welsh preacher, uh, he wrote over something like 68 sermons just on these verses, and like 230 sermons on the whole of Ephesians over eight years. So while I would love to slow down here in verses 13 through 18 and sort of examine under the microscope, as it were, all the pieces of the armor of God. We don't have time for that. That'll be for another sermon series, perhaps. But we do need to understand very quickly or briefly each of these pieces of armor. So look again here, verse 13, starting here, Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Well, I think for many of us, we've, we, we know that Paul here is again alluding to the fact that the Ephesians live under the Roman Empire. And Paul is drawing upon uh, that Roman military, all the different equipment, the pieces that they had uh, as soldiers. What Paul is partly doing here is recalling that Roman soldier and all the different powerful modern military tech, uh, uh, technology that he had. The Roman military was the most advanced military at the time. So partly what Paul's doing here is, is using that to, to talk about the Christian armor. But what we often forget is that Paul is also drawing upon Old Testament imagery of how the Bible describes God himself. God himself is equipped in these pieces of armor. And so in fact, what Paul is doing here is combining these two images. Earthly military power, a spiritual heavenly power, together and saying, Christian, this is the armor that you are equipped with in your fight. Notice here there are six spiritual instruments to withstand the devil's attacks. Number one, the belt of truth in verse 14. The belt of the Roman soldier is what sort of held up his tunic, his clothes, so that he wouldn't get tripped up while he was fighting. It's a picture here of how the Word of God which is truth, is what steadies us, what makes us ready for action. The truth and the word of God gives us confidence for the fight. Then number two, notice this, the breastplate of righteousness in verse 14, because Roman soldiers also had a, a physical plate of armor covering their vital organs here across the chest and stomach. But God himself is in fact, in Isaiah 59, uh, portrayed, described as wearing this type of armor as well. And so Paul here is referring to, again, this, this combination of spiritual and earthly. What he's saying is Christians have a divine righteousness, the righteousness of Christ covering them from spiritual attacks in the Christian faith. Reminds me of a story uh, Martin Luther a great reformer in the Christian faith, Martin Luther, described one time how he had a very disturbing dream. Now, in this dream, uh, the devil came to Martin Luther, and in his hand he had three big scrolls. As the devil came to Luther, he unrolled the first scroll, and he pointed, to, pointed at it to Luther, and he said, Luther, did you really commit, commit all of these sins? Luther, trembling a little bit, said, Yes, yes, I did. I, I committed those sins. Do you have any more? Satan unrolled the, the next scroll and pointed to all the other sins Luther had committed. And then he rolled the third one again and, and pointed to all those sins that Luther had committed. And then Luther says, do you have any more? 
And the devil says, well, well, no, I don't. But isn't that enough to damn anyone? Don't you really, you can't really believe that God would forgive all of that. In his dream, Luther takes up a pen and he writes across the three scrolls, the blood of Christ cleanses me from all sin. And Satan vanished in his dream. See, friends, the point is when a believer is washed in Christ's blood and clothed in Christ's righteousness, and Satan has nothing to accuse you of. There's no accusation of sin, past, present, or future, that can condemn you in the eyes of God. This is what protects you, is the perfect righteousness of Christ, not a righteousness of your own, but what Christ has accomplished and has clothed you in. Now, there's a third piece of equipment here that Paul describes here in verse 15, shoes. Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You think of shoes, or the Roman shoes that they would have worn had nails hammered into them that gave them a grip so they wouldn't slip when they were fighting. It's also a throwback to how Isaiah describes in chapter 52 of his message. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Friends, in this season of Christmas, we've already sung several Christmas hymns of proclaiming peace, right? That can only be found in Christ, a reconciling between God and man, that you're no longer at enmity with God if you're in Christ. What's going to settle you against sin then? What's going to help you stand against sin is the reminder of the fact that you're at peace with God. You're no longer His enemy. You're His friend. He's on your side. But there's a fourth piece of armor here. We'll quickly look at the shield of faith in verse 16, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I think what Paul is thinking of here, he's going back to the Roman soldiers. They would dip their shields in water before battle so that when the enemy shot flaming arrows at them, they would just extinguish. Belief in God and His promises. This is the way that you're going to extinguish the devil's attacks. Continually trusting in God's Word, continually looking to Christ, is the means by which you can overcome the temptations of the devil. After all, this is what John says in 1 John 5, verse 4, For anyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. When you have faith in Christ, you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Then moving on here, the fifth one, the helmet of salvation, verse 17. I think Paul would hear, he's also thinking of his Isaiah 59 again, picturing God himself as wearing a helmet as he goes out to defeat his enemies. There's a story, I don't know if you've ever heard of Lord Oliver Cromwell, who's a 17th century English general during the Civil War, Cromwell was known for winning pretty much all of his battles. He led these armies, sometimes against insurmountable odds, and they won so many times. 
It was said that their armies were not able to lose because they were Calvinists. Uh, because they would go into battle so sure that no matter what happened, it was ordained by God. And so they fought with this fierce confidence in God's providence. He was fully in charge of their lives and in the battle. And so, friends, there's a sense in which that should be true of you as, and me as well. Isn't that, isn't that the case? Even though we might experience setbacks in the Christian life, we have such a firm confidence that God is in control every single step of the way that we will not go down to defeat. We don't need to lose confidence. We know what the ultimate outcome is going to be. Our salvation is secured. As we heard about in Psalm 91 just a little bit ago in the service, there's nothing in this world if you're a Christian, that can rob you of your salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's getting at here. He says also in 2 Corinthians 4, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, so we do not lose heart. Friends, that's the confidence that we have as Christians, wearing the helmet of salvation. Your life is secure in Christ. But then we see here also the sixth instrument, the weapon that we're given here. In fact, it's the only weapon in all of the armor of God. In verse 17, it says, The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As your weapon in the Christian life is God's Word. An important weapon, after all, because didn't Jesus describe Satan as the father of lies? There's no truth in him. But what is your weapon? The sword of truth, the word of God, which is truth. Remember, Jesus himself used this weapon in his fight against temptations in the wilderness, didn't he? Three times Satan came to him and tempted him. How did Jesus respond each time? Each time he said, It is written. It is written. It is written. Fighting with the sword of the Spirit, Jesus himself counterattacked. We know Jesus has also described himself in the book of Revelation as having a sword coming from his mouth. We're not meant to take that literally, of course. It's an image to describe just how powerful his word is, that he defeats his enemies, he conquers by his word. And of course, we also know that well-known passage in Hebrews 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Friends, that is your weapon in the Christian life. All of these weapons, these six things, belt, breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet, sword, are covering you in the Christian life. And yet, don't miss this, if that's all you have in this fight, you're, unequ- you're still unequipped. There's one more thing, one more instrument that Paul wants to highlight to you that you need to have in the Christian life. That's what he says in verse 18. Did you see it here? Paul says in verse 18, Be praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. 
I don't know about you, but I, I wasn't expecting that to top off this list of weaponry in the Christian life. You know, what about a mallet of, of, of a criticism or, or a trebuchet of, of, of attack? No, no, no. Prayer. By prayer at all times in the Holy Spirit. Prayer is the most powerful weapon you possess in the Christian life. Why? Because by prayer, you're calling down the divine aid of God himself, who is the greatest warrior in this fight. Prayer is holy artillery. Prayer is God coming to the battle. Jesus himself said that prayer is our weapon against temptation. Pray, he told his disciples, so that you will not fall into temptation. For the apostle Paul, he, he highlights this. He emphasizes this in his own life. Do you remember how he shares about in 2 Corinthians? He's attacked by this messenger of Satan, sent to harass him. But what does he do? He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that he should leave me prayer, repeated prayer, Paul says, for help in the fight against temptation. Just like any soldier who's wounded in battle is rushed back behind the lines to a field hospital to get help for their soul, so too we as soldiers in the Christian life must race to God's throne of grace when we are attacked. After all, as Charles Spurgeon said it so memorably, because you are tempted without ceasing, you should pray without ceasing. So to withstand the devil's attacks, you must stand firmly grounded in Christ and equipped in God's armor. But let me say, friends, while I would love to consider each piece of this armor in more depth, I know that it's very quick, I don't want us to miss the larger picture of what Paul is telling us in our Christian fight with having all these pieces of armor. What Paul is telling you here. He's telling you, first of all, Christian, yes, you're in a real battle, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You have a real enemy with dangerous weapons and tactics, but don't fear the enemy because you are equipped with all of this armor. You, in fact, are fighting an offensive battle. You are fully equipped and victory is sure. I wonder if you've ever heard this story of William the Conqueror. Uh, the story is probably more fiction than fact, I think, but uh, William the Conqueror, when he and his armies invaded England, their ships landed on the shore of England and all their armies uh, landed on shore. You remember what William the Conqueror is said to have done in order to inspire his troops to motivate them to victory and to show them that there was no retreat, he burned all their ships once they reached England. Retreat was not an option because victory was sure. As a Christian then, in the same way, you fight an offensive battle, not a defensive one. Retreat is not an option. As William Gurnall put it, he said, God provides you armor to defend the Christian while fighting, not protecting you while retreating. Don't be afraid, Christian, because the moment you're united to Christ, 
God has clothed you with every single piece of this armor for battle. He's given you his own weaponry, so to speak, and he's fighting with you. There's one other thing that you should be bolstered by, encouraged by, when you read about this armor, is that is, Christian, you should train your hands for war. Not only should we not be afraid, we should also be motivated to be trained how to use this, right? I mean, what army would just throw weapons at their soldiers and expect them to know how to use it? To march off into battle without any training? Well, soldiers of any army are expected to train to know how to use these weapons. And so too, I mean, soldiers are they're taught how, how to use the weapons, how to, how to eat right even. They're even taught how to exercise. They're given target practice. They're also under the command of officers, and they're a part of a larger fighting force. Well, so too in the Christian military, so to speak, you need to train your hands for war. Just as the psalmist says in Psalm 144, Blessed be my God, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Christian, go into battle with these weapons. Do that by feeding on the Word of God every day, strengthening your faith every day by looking to Christ, studying God's Word to learn the enemy's battle plans, receive instruction from others, your commanding officers, as it were, here on the Lord's Day who give you instruction from God's Word, and feed your souls on the body of Christ when you take the Lord's Supper. It's given to you to train your hands for war. Now take this battle seriously. But there is another thing, another, I think, encouragement here that Paul wants us to be aware of if we are to fight this battle. Not just that you have the armor of God, the fourth thing that I want us to see here, indeed what Paul wants us to see here, is that you're actually in battle with other Christians. Did you see that in verses 19 and 20? Friends, you need to remember that as a Christian, you're in battle with other Christians. Paul says this, talks about it, saying, Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now you might be familiar with the context of Ephesians here. You know that Paul is writing this letter while he's in prison. He's waiting possible execution in a Roman jail up against a powerful Roman empire. You think he had just a little bit of fear? A little bit of anxiety maybe in that situation? I think so. What was Paul's remedy? How's he going to be bold in the face of that? He asks for prayer. He asks the Ephesians to pray for him. In fact, Paul many times in his letters asks for other Christians to pray for him. Colossians 4 verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 25, 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1. He's asking for it. He needs it. Because even the great apostle Paul is not scared to ask for help. Even he knows that if he's going to withstand this battle, he needs other Christians alongside of him in prayer. So friends, I hope you can see just how important prayer is in the life of the church. What's going to encourage Christians today who face an authoritarian regime? 
what's going to encourage Christians today, empower small house churches, churches to continue meeting and worshiping in the shadow of police, what's going to encourage you if the police come and interrogate you, what's going to help you embolden you, not just to withstand, but even as Paul does here, to be emboldened to preach the gospel in those circumstances. Let me tell you, it's not the size of your church. It's not how much earthly power you possess. It's not your intelligence. It's not your strength. It's the same thing that encouraged Christians in Ephesus to face the power of the Roman Empire. It's the same thing that encouraged the Apostle Paul The courage of the Christian church lies more in the strength of our prayers than it does in any power we possess. That's why it's important, friends, to be here every Lord's Day, corporate worship, praying together. It's also good to be attending these evening services like you're scheduled to have tonight. Those evening services are an especially good way for you to call in spiritual reinforcements, as it were. Those prayer meetings are a great way to train together. That's like special forces training, right? Because you're helping each other do target practice to line up your hearts with God's will. You're sharing with other Christians your weaknesses and the strengths of your heart, how you can defend. You're helping each other to spy out the enemy's tactics and to be aware of spiritual ambushes. So attend to those great ways to help each other in battle. But I also hope you can see that even your church leaders need your prayers. I mean, if the great Apostle Paul, theologian, church planner, uh, apostle, missionary, if he needed people's prayers as a church leader, how much more do we as pastors need your prayers? Pastors struggle with temptation just as much as you do. So please pray for them. Pray for your elders. Pray for them to battle every day against sin, the flesh, and the devil. I don't know anybody in the Christian life who can make this, who can fight this battle all on their own strength. A lone Christian is an easy target for the devil to pick off. We need to be in battle alongside other Christians. That leads us to the last thing that we need to know about this war, about this fight, We saw it at the very beginning. That is, you have a king who fights for you. If you're going to withstand in the Christian life, this spiritual war, you need to know that Jesus, your Lord, is fighting for you. God doesn't just toss you a suit of armor and expect you to go it alone. No, no. He's gone on ahead of you. He's fighting in front of you. That's what Paul's getting at here in verse 10, I think, when he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Not your own might. Not your own power. It's an important lesson for us to learn. Friends, the the spiritual warfare that we fight, it is not an unfortunate byproduct of the Christian life. The purpose of spiritual warfare is also certainly not for you to win your salvation. Your salvation's already won. Spiritual warfare is actually a design of God to teach you 
to fully rely on Him. Spiritual warfare is redemptive because it frees you, it frees me from relying on our own pride, our own self-sufficiency. It's meant to drive you away from all that so that you will throw yourself on the Lord and in the strength of His might. Does fighting the Christian battle ever weary you? You know, it wearies me. I know sometimes it frightens me. I know sometimes I say, God, there is no way that I can continue to fight today. There is no way that I can continue to go on. This just seems impossible. There's no way I can battle the devil every day. Well, God is saying to me and to you today, exactly. You can't do it. Not on your own strength, but I can on the strength of my might. Trust in me. Friends, that's, that's the story of so much of Scripture, is it not, from beginning to end? Don't rely on your own strength. You rely on yourself. You have faith in yourself. You're going to fail. But God's message to you throughout the Bible is, I will fight for my people. Rely on me. Trust in me. Trust in my Savior, Jesus Christ, because I fight for my people, and I use even the smallest and weakest of people to win my battles. Do you ever think about that throughout Scripture? I, God says, I can bring down an entire city of Jericho with just shouting and trumpets. I can defeat an entire Midianite army with just 300 people in Gideon. I can defeat even a giant with a small shepherd boy and a sling and a stone. It's not your strength, okay? God's saying it's my strength. I fight for you. Over and over again, this is the message of Scripture. After all, what greater demonstration of fighting for us can we find than in Jesus Christ himself? This is what Jesus came to do, isn't it? To fight. That's what Paul says back in Ephesians 1. If you were to flip back there, he says, he put all things under Jesus' feet. And earlier in Ephesians 4, he says, therefore Jesus led captivity captive. He proclaims it so clearly in, in Colossians 2 when he says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, here's the message of the Bible. Christianity is a victory over your worst enemy. That's one for you, not by you. This is the good news of the gospel. The righteous God made us to love him and serve him. We in rebellion, in our sin, decided to fight against him and make ourselves kings and queens. We put ourselves on the other side of the battle. God, as a righteous God, will not allow this disobedience and rebellion to continue forever. He will come to judge it. And our only defense in that day will be in Christ's righteousness and his sacrifice, because God himself sent his eternal son to become a man and live this perfect life, this sinless life in our place. He bore God's wrath. He bore God's judgment fully of, against our sin. And he raised Jesus from the dead to prove that it was not his sin, but our own that he took upon himself. All those who believe then in Christ for their salvation are assured that we are reconciled to God. We no longer fight against him. We are on his side. And he's given us his jersey, the armor of God, to show that we are fighting with him. 
in this spiritual battle. And friends, the Bible promises us that for those who do put on Christ and trust in him, we are assured of final victory. Romans 8 tells us this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave, us, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, you have a real enemy. You know his tactics, how he operates. Train yourself in the armor and weapons that God has given you. Ask other Christians for help. But of course, and ultimately, look to Christ, your King, who is fighting for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would help us to withstand the devil's attacks by standing firmly in Christ and equipped in your armor. Father, we pray that as we meditate on this word, that your Holy Spirit would be the after preacher in our hearts, preaching a greater message than the one who prepared this one. So, Father, by, by doing so, help us to not just be hearers of the word today, but to be doers of the word as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.